Welcome to Sharp Talk, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Karen Donfried. Karen Donfried is the president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, GMF for short. Karen, we're obviously going to talk about things transatlantic. At the moment, it's, it's challenging, to say the least, uh, for people who care about are committed to the transatlantic relationship to find out how to, to keep that relationship alive and well in the current political circumstances. As we speak, um, Mr. Trump has just announced basically a, a trade war, declared a trade war in effect, and inevitably the European Union has uh, also announced kind of retaliatory measures. Is this the sign of things to come, or is this a, a temporary blip that can be sorted out in relatively short order? It's a great question, Paul, and I don't know the answer. It's interesting, in Washington, and I did not coin this phrase, but uh, there's another analyst who said, when you think about President Trump, are we talking about teleprompter Trump or Twitter Trump? Ah. We saw teleprompter Trump at Davos, for example, and certainly we've seen Twitter Trump in many instances, but he's doubled down on this trade war primarily through Twitter. It's exposed an important cleavage in the Republican Party. You have the leaders of the Republican leader of the U.S. Senate, the Republican leader of the U.S. House, both asking that he stand down and not put these tariffs in place on steel and aluminum. But it's not at all clear what President Trump will do. And if he does move forward down this path, I think it suggests that we'll see ever deeper divisions with our European allies who have believed up until now that they should not listen to everything the president says, but rather wait for him to act. If he acts on something as significant to transatlantic interests as trade, I think we'll see a significant backlash. So we can talk about teleprompter Trump, which is a fascinating idea, concept. Uh, presumably that means where he has to stick to a script and he has to be statesmanlike and solemn and not just shoot from the hip. How do we know which subjects uh, qualify for teleprompter Trump treatment and those which qualify for Trump Twitter treatment? That idea of teleprompter Trump also is highlighting what many people see as the difference between the president and many of his key advisors. Right. And often we see that on the foreign policy and security policy front. So you might take the example of NATO and say, well, during the campaign, Donald Trump was very dismissive of NATO, spoke about NATO as obsolete. He's beat the drum very hard on the need for all of our allies to meet 2% of GDP spending on defense. But if you look at what the U.S. has actually done in that space, it's been one of the main allies behind the European Deterrence Initiative. We have U.S. troops stationed in Poland. The U.S. has taken action that demonstrates a deep commitment to the NATO alliance. So that's the disconnect people right. are pointing to. But that disconnect, though, is it because often people say trying to find reassurance in the slightly, should we, at least, should we say, unpredictable White House, that he has some grown-ups around him, especially in the area of security and defense, and therefore they're the ones who try and, and introduce an element of, of, of common sense, in, especially in the foreign security field. Is that the reason why, the, despite the rhetoric of the president, the reality, as you're suggesting on the ground, is, 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 is being determined by these grown-ups who actually advise, let's not stray away from the status quo approach to uh, world security? 
So if you look at many of President Trump's key advisors, if you take our Secretary of Defense, Secretary Mattis, if you look at Rex Tillerson at State, at McMaster, at the National Security Council, these are people who have been active in international relations for a long time and have a theory of the case that Donald Trump perhaps doesn't have. As we've seen, President Trump has a transactional view of relationships. It's right. what have you done for me lately? He doesn't seem to think in a longer term sense about the relationship with Europe, what the benefits and the costs of that have been. It has to do with each particular deal. So I think that's part of the distinction you're seeing there. People who have a more strategic view of the U.S. role in the world and are trying to keep the U.S. on course in that larger role, whereas President Trump is focused on the transactions in each case. Well, does that maybe mean also that uh, when it comes to the, at least, uh, let's, looking for, let's look for the, the, the positives, when it comes to security issues uh, around the NATO uh, shield, as it were, there he takes, and his advisors obviously take that relationship very seriously. Um, that you have an ambassador to, to NATO now since almost the beginning, practically speaking. Whereas when it comes to European Union and more economic and trade-related uh, dossiers, you have yet to the U.S. has yet to nominate an ambassador, uh, and therefore somehow, despite Mr. Trump's very transactional uh, reflexes, as you suggest, when it comes to the EU relationship, he doesn't really know. He doesn't really care about it that much. I think in part it goes back to his transactional view of relationships and when he looks at the European Union he's very focused on the trade issue as we've seen most recently but we've also seen it over time he has been critical of Germany because of its massive trade surplus right. in the NATO context of course, he would laud those allies who are spending 2% of their GDP on defense, but he also came rather slowly to that. And you'll remember that last year at the meeting of NATO leaders, it wasn't even a NATO summit, right. it was a leaders meeting, and there was an expectation that President Trump was going to reaffirm his personal and the U.S.'s commitment to Article 5, the collective defense part of the NATO treaty, and he did not do that. Right. Now, he did it thereafter. He also did it when he visited Poland. But he's been slow, even in the NATO context, to personally give his imprimatur of support to the alliance. When you look at the European Union, I think it's clear that one of the individuals who's had the greatest impact on him has been Nigel Farage. Yeah. And Nigel Farage has a very negative view of the European Union. He's played to the president's sense that the European unity is an infringement on sovereignty of the member states, and that's something that President Trump is not sympathetic to. So there hasn't been, I think, the same counterbalance on the EU account that you've seen on the NATO account with a Secretary Mattis and others making the case to the president about why that alliance serves the U.S. interest. So it seems that when it comes to security and defense, um, the people around him, the senior people, the grown-ups in the room, whether it's Tillerson, uh, McMaster's, or uh, Mattis, they, they seem to agree there's some kind of broad consensus. When it comes to economic and trade issues, the people around him don't seem to agree. We're, we're recording this, Karen, as you know, that more or less the day that Gary Cohn has announced his resignation as head of the National Economic Council. And, uh, and uh, it's, it, is a, it is reported in the media that Steve Mnuchin has been thinking about his own future for quite some time because they don't approve basically of this trade stance of the president, whereas other people like the USTR and others are very, uh, very supportive of, of, of Trump's uh, managing 
by, by Twitter on trade issues. So there's, there's a big dis disconnect there, isn't there? On trade issues, there is a clear divide within the administration. You've talked about the particular advisors and, and cabinet secretaries who are on the various sides of that issue. And we haven't known to date who was going to win. Right. From very early in the Trump administration, the president, one of his first decisions was to no longer pursue the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Right. So that was a clear stance he took on trade. And then he very shortly thereafter announced a renegotiation of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Those negotiations or renegotiating the treaty have been underway with no conclusion to date. Now we have the president rhetorical stance saying that he's going to put in place uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum. We've seen key members of Congress and some of his key advisors trying to convince him that's not the best approach if you're pursuing an America first policy. In fact, there will be significant blowback on American consumers if right. you go down that path. We don't know what the president is going to decide on that. Gary Cohn's decision to leave suggests that if one is sitting in Europe, one should be concerned yeah. about what actions are going to flow from this. But this will be a deeply contentious policy within the U.S. The irony of this is the Republican yeah, Party, the party traditionally has been the party supportive of free trade agreements, yeah. a profound belief that free trade agreements lead to greater prosperity for Americans. It's the Democrats who, because of concerns around environment right. and labor, have been less enthusiastic about free trade agreements. So this is going to spark a coalition that I think in many cases will be bipartisan. So we'll see the impact of this also on the midterm elections that will take place in the U.S. this November. Well, is it that suggest then, Karen, that he's in a sense, to use a kind of silly phrase, he's the president is kind of pushing his luck until now, 15th month into his presidency, he's kind of got away with an awful lot. I know some has been empty rhetoric, I, I accept, but other stuff people say, well, let him, let him find his feet, let him do what he wants to do for the moment. But now on this trade issue, finally, um, as you're suggesting, bipartisan reaction is going to kick in in a way that wasn't not witnessed before? I think we don't know how President Trump responds if criticism of, in this case, his trade policy increases. That may well lead him to double down on that policy. Right. And what we've seen consistently over the past year is that President Trump's base is ever more committed to him. So President Trump's base in right. the American public will support this move right. because sort of the bumper sticker in many places in the heartland of the United States is free trade equals lost jobs. So you have this sort of bring it on attitude among his base. So I, it's not obvious to me that he changes course right. if the establishment, quote unquote, increases its criticism of his policy choices. When people talk, I'm interested, when people talk about Trump's base, I mean, maybe the mindset is that they'll, they'll turn out for him when he's every four years whenever he's a candidate on two occasions maximum, whereas, which suggests they have less impact, the, his base, in determining the outcome of midterm elections. So do you think his base, who are maybe, as you're suggesting, pro and in favor of his recent announcements on trade, will actually then be supporting GOP candidates in the midterms and in the fall of this year? It's a great question. And what we're seeing in both parties, in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, is how divided those parties are. Mm -hmm. So in the Republican Party, there is a very clear fight going on between those parts of the party that are sympathetic, supportive of Trump, 
the Freedom Party versus moderate Republicans. We've seen a lot of moderate Republicans in the House decide not to run again. We've also seen that in the Senate. If you look at the Democratic Party, you see a split between more moderate Democrats and Democrats who are more to the left. We don't know how it's going to play out in either party. And this also is where the midterm elections will be important. And the interesting thing about President Trump's base is also, is there going to be a change in how women vote? The Me Too movement, there's been a lot of focus on things President Trump has said, behaviors that have become publicized over the past year that suggest maybe women will support President Trump in smaller numbers than they did in the general election. So there are a lot of questions that are going to be interesting to see how they play out in November. Well, let's bring this back then to, to the GMF, your organization, Karen. I mean, as I said at the beginning, these are challenging times, and I choose my words wisely for people committed to the transatlantic relationship. Is it, is it just too much and, that, and for a while we just have to give up on, the, on this relationship and, and maybe revisit it in a couple of years' time? Or are there ways, creative ways for, for groups like yours and others to, to, to maintain the, 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 the relationship, to maintain the momentum of, 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 of discussion and dialogue across the pond, irrespective of what's happening in the White House? Let me just remind all of your listeners, Paul, that the German Marshall Fund of the United States, the organization I have the privilege of running, was set up in 1972 thanks to a generous gift from the then West German government to thank Americans for the Marshall Plan. And the Marshall Plan takes us back to a moment in history, 1947, that I think is an example of enlightened U.S. leadership. You had a Democratic president and Republican majorities in both houses of Congress. And when Secretary of State Marshall then proposed the U.S. spend roughly 2% of its annual budget to give assistance to help rebuild Europe's economies, it was not a popular idea. Right. Those Republican majorities in Congress were focused on the U.S. after World War II, after having spent lots of treasure and spilt blood in that fight. But they believed an America First policy was about reaching out, helping Europe rebuild. It was in our interest, right. for sure. We wanted trade partners. We wanted allies. But that's why enlightened self-interest is something all countries pursue. And when we think about how enlightened self-interest is defined today in the US, it's a very different definition. I don't think that America has changed fundamentally. Right. I think you're catching America in a moment that we see many European countries trapped into, mm. that we have lots of folks in our country who feel they've been ill-served right. by this order. And so it's on us as GMF, it's on those of us who believe that liberal democracy is the best form of government, democracy, free market economy, rights of the individual, rule of law. And what we're realizing is we can't take that for granted in 2018. We have to make the case about why that serves the interests of someone living in Peoria or Indianapolis or South Bend in the same way it serves the interests of those of us living in Washington or San Francisco or New York. And I think that's something that GMF can do, it's something leaders should do, but it's also something that every one of us has agency in sending that message, and we need to make the case. Okay, we have to bring this to a close. Karen Donfrey, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul.